A recent poll revealed that about 70% of all husbands and fathers think they're totally unappreciated. And about the time you get the feeling, whether you're a man or a woman, a mom or a dad, that nobody appreciates you, just remember that in the long run, the thing that'll make the most difference is the Heavenly Father's, well done, my child. We're in Revelation chapter 14. We find ourselves this morning at verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. And from here to the end of the chapter, he envisions, John does, all of the events from this point in the tribulation to the very end of time. And he lays that picture out for you in seven things or objects that he sees or hears. When I was a boy, I rarely understood my father. I didn't understand why he didn't spend more time with us. I didn't understand why he said no to the things I wanted. I didn't understand why it was so important for him to discipline us when I infringed upon the rights of one of my six siblings. I didn't understand why every time we made a trip we had to have a flat tire. I didn't understand why we rarely made a trip in which the brakes didn't go out. I rarely understood why he didn't give me more time. And then I became a father. And I wrestled with all of the things that dad must have been wrestling with in that post-depression era trying to provide for a family of seven. And I know now, as I talk to my adult children, that they didn't understand why I said no any more than I understood why my father said no. And they didn't understand why I didn't spend more time with them any more than I didn't understand why my dad didn't spend more time. I wrestled with it all of my parenting life. But I gradually came throughout the battles of parenting and fathering and husbanding I gradually came to the place where I think I saw what my dad saw. And it was galvanized by an experience I had in Ardmore after we had had our fourth child and Jonathan had been born. And I got in a police car with Sergeant Gene Kelly and rode all night one night trying to find out what policemen went through. And we found a 14-year-old boy running between houses at about 2.30 in the morning in Ardmore. And when we caught the child, and he was a child, we said, we're going to call your parents. And he said, you can call anybody you want, but you won't find my parents. They're out partying somewhere, and I'm by myself. And there's no one for you to call because no one cares that much about me. 
And when the evening shift was over, the words of that 14-year-old boy coming from an empty home with nobody there to hold him accountable rang in my mind for a long time. And I came to understand that the highest testimony of love is the testimony of accountability. That if I love you, I will hold you responsible. And when men ask, how could a loving God provide eternal, tormenting fire and judgment, the answer is found in the lessons we learn as dads ourselves. It is possible to love and discipline and hold accountable at the same time. And it is not only possible, it is necessary because it reflects the nature of God. Now the battle in Revelation is moving on. And come with me, John says, and you come with us, I say. And let's go to the top of the mountain. And in chapter 14, verse 1, we find ourselves on the top of Mount Zion. And we're looking down the valley of Hinnom and on into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And if you could see far enough, you would see into the valley of Megiddo. And as you stand on the top of that mountain, you will see 360 panoramic sovereign historic degrees of God's plan for the rest of time. I love to go to Pilot Mountain. Rob, I saw you over here somewhere, where gave me a picture of Pilot Mountain recently. I love to go to the top of Pilot Mountain and see the whole world, 360 degrees around. Isn't that great? Over there's Mount Airy, and over there's Elkin, and da over there's Winston, and down there's Pinnacle, and, and uh, there are the farms, and there are the cars crawling like silent spiders along those twines of road. <laughs> and that must be what John saw. At the top of Mount Zion, God showed him Seven things. Here they are. Ready? The first is an angel in verse 6, flying in the mid-heavens. Translate it rightly. Not the midst, but in the mid-heavens, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, and here's the good news that he was preaching. It is not the gospel of grace for our age. It is not the gospel of the covenant of the Old Testament age. It is a general message of good news. And what is the good news? Well, it will blow your mind. But the good news is that God is going to bring judgment. That's the good news. That he's going to make wrong things right and injustices just. So here's what he is saying with a loud voice as John watches from the mountaintop. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Angel number one flies in the mid heavens and says, here's the gospel. In the midst of this tribulation period of great war as we prepare for the coming of Christ on clouds of glory to bring judgment, hear the message. Let all the world hear it one more time. I am declaring worship God and get ready for judgment. It is the everlasting gospel. It is this 
that is proclaimed is true in every age. Now, man is always saved by Christ. You understand that, don't you? Adam and Eve were saved by Christ. When God clothed them, it was a type of our being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Men are always saved by Christ. When Israel was saved in the Old Testament, they were saved looking forward to Christ. When we are saved now, we are saved looking back to the cross. All men are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But here's the everlasting gospel, that God is God, and we are to fear him, and he is to receive glory from us. And the hour of his judgment has come. Good news. God, the loving God, is going to judge the world. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we are preaching the gospel of grace. Come to Christ. That's what we're trying to do in the harvest of evangelism. It is my deep desire that God will surface in you a burden for lost people, a lost friend or a group of people, and that you will use every means to try to bring those people to Christ. We're going to do that for three to four weeks, the last of March and the first of April. That's going to be our harvest time. But I want to remind you, folks, do not preach that the gospel is the gospel of a serving God. God is not at our beck and command. Sometimes the way we present the gospel, I have the feeling that you think God is your servant to do your bidding. Come to Jesus and he'll make you happy. Come to Jesus and he'll take care of all of your problems. The gospel begins with a holy God and man is sinful and man has broken the holiness of God. And God is not our little bellboy with a cap on to jump every time we ring the bell. He has been offended by our sin. He is angry about our sin. His wrath is settled about our sin. And you better deal with sin. Now the way that God meets our needs is to first reconcile us to himself. Get that relationship straightened out so that we have a proper understanding about who God is. Then you will understand what he's trying to do in you when he disciplines you or chastens you. Verse 8 says, the second thing happened to John. Another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Epicen, epicen. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. He says it twice for emphasis. That great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, Babylon represented originally the ancient city, the ancient Mesopotamian city, if I recall correctly. And then, you know, it represented, it came to mean the spirit of godlessness in every age. It came to represent the city that was to take Judah into captivity. It came to represent Rome, which made Christians bow down to the emperor or sought to. It came to re represent that spirit of secular humanism in every age, the spirit that, want, that says man wants to be free from God. And society that is set free from God virtually always destroys itself. Babylon is a self-destructive spirit. And another angel comes as John stands on that peak and says, it's, in, it's over. This spirit which continually takes the world towards evil and sin is fallen, is fallen, because she has made the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, meaning fornication, meaning the idolatry which men went to in unfaithfulness to God. She drank, she made the nations, the Gentile nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. 
Now, it's just a figure drinking of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. But when you participate in idolatry, there is a price to be paid. You are drinking the wine of the wrath for idolatry. And drunk, the nations went after these other gods, and Israel followed. But John sees a third angel in verse 9. Another angel followed them, the first two, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So now God says, I will turn the cup around. Just as the nations drank voluntarily the wine of the fornication of Babylon and fell into the spirit of the age and went after false gods, you will drink of the wine of my wrath. Now, what is God's wrath? God's wrath is not a, a temper that gets angry when you step on his toes. God's wrath, listen to this, I want everybody to understand this, is a settled conviction against sin, and it's always the same. God doesn't love one moment and hate the next. God doesn't love one moment and have wrath against sin the next. He always hates sin. He is dead set against sin. He's made up his mind. You don't have to wonder if you come to God on Thursday, will he be in a good mood or a bad mood? He's always the same about sin. Amen? You understand that? The wrath of God is not his explosive emotional anger to something that happened. He doesn't get mad that way. God's wrath is a settled, deep conviction against sin. You see, when men say, I don't understand how a loving God could punish man, they don't understand God. And I'll be very frank with you. There is a spirit loose in Baptists. There may be as many as 20 to 25 percent of Baptist pastors in this state who no longer believe in a literal hell, a literal fire. They believe in a form of universalism that God is too loving a God ever to punish man. And if you want to know what is cutting at the root of our evangelistic emphasis, I want to tell you this. Unless you believe that man is lost without Christ and God's settled wrath will be worked out against sin and he will punish, though he loves the world, he will punish the world, you will never be convinced that men are lost without Jesus and need Jesus to be saved. Now, here's one of the most important doctrines in all the Word of God. And I want you to see, here it is laid out in Revelation. Look at, the, look at the facets of this. The first thing, there is torment in what these people shall go to. There is torment. They shall be tormented. So you ask me, is the fire real or not real? I don't know, but I'll tell you this. Whatever it is, it is going to be torment. It will be worse than what we understand fire to be. And brimstone, a reminder of Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, we don't understand this. 
But I want you to understand something about the justice of God. He points out that men, these men, who have been sucked into the fornication of Babylon, the spirit of godlessness during this tribulation period, and have worshipped the beast and the image of the beast in verses, uh, in chapters 12 and 13, these will be punished in the presence of everything righteous, holy angels, and the presence of the Lamb. Time magazine had an article, or no, no, Wall Street Journal had a major article last fall. Whatever happened to hell? And the Wall Street Journal said, there is a resurgence of belief in the United States in a literal hell. Three weeks ago, Newsweek had a major article, a cover article, on what happened to shame. Did you remember? Did, did any of you read that? What happened to shame? And there's a concept of justice that goes like this. When men are punished, let them be punished in the presence of those whom they offended. Let them see the punishment so that you establish a sense of justice. Do you understand now why the third angel says that these shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the whom? The Lamb. Will the Father ultimately get vengeance and justice, though he loves the world? And the answer is yes. And verse 11 says, The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. From age to age, the torment is ageless. You can believe what you want to, but I'm going to believe the Bible. And the text of the Bible is that man doesn't suffer instantly and then die like a dog. This is torment from age to age to age to age to age. And that is a loving God. But it is eternal judgment against sin. Now here it is in the text. You've either got to accept the text and make your belief fit with it, or you've got to change the Bible. And whatever this torment is, whatever the fire punishment is in the presence of the Lamb, the smoke of the torment, it is ageless. They have, verse 11, no rest day or night. No rest. No rest. Who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Why would a loving God do that to a world that he loved? after he had reached out and done everything he, he could to save the world. There is coming a time, the book of Revelation says, just like a father says to his son, I've extended my patience as long as I can extend it. The time has come and here is judgment. Do you remember? Has that ever happened to you in your childhood? Now you see, it's very important that we understand that because that's the way a sense of holiness and justice is established. Sanctions define an offense. A $60 speeding ticket will define for you quickly what it means if you get picked up for speeding. And if you're 16 and just got your driver's license, that will define it pretty quickly if your parents make you earn it. And unless we establish in our teaching about God that there is a sanction from the Holy God that is an eternal sanction and is eternal judgment, how can I or society ever take seriously the holiness of God? 
Do you understand why that is necessary? And John sees a fourth thing in verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven. No angel this time. This is God. No angel. I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write a command, an order from God. Write this down. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. That they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Here in the midst of this is a word of blessing. There are seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation, and this is one of the seven. And here's a Beatitude of blessing. Man says, blessed are those who have life. God says, blessed are they who die. Isn't it interesting how our view of things is so different from God's? Man says, blessed are those who are rich. And God says, blessed are those who are poor. God judges by the heart. Man judges by appearance. We say, blessed are the things which are seen. The man that has a lot of things to be seen. God says, look for the things which are not seen. Here he says, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. In the midst of all of this conflagration which John is seeing moving towards the actual return of Christ. In the midst of all that, here's what makes a saint patient. Here are those who keep the commandments of God. It is the blessing of death. Death can be a blessing. You understand that. When Martha Lennon's mother went to be with the Lord, after that suffering, when a loved one of yours went to be with the Lord, after suffering, that's a blessing for a believer because he's contrasting the fire and brimstone and the judgment of those who refused God's message and worshiped the beast He's contrasting that with the blessedness of those who die in the Lord. It's a blessing. I'm in the presence of God. There's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. No more suffering. Hold your hand here and turn back to chapter 7. Do you remember what he said in chapter 7, verse 9, when he, when he was introducing the concept of the tribulation? After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Where were they? standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes that the choir just sang about, palm branches in their hands. There's nothing here about soul sleeping. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord because they're standing here, the dead in Revelation, pictured before the throne. They're not in some intermediary state. A man said to me the other day, no wonder the Palestinian terrorists are willing to blow up their bodies. They go to an intermediate state, and that intermediate state is a harem. Would you put a bomb to yourself for a harem of 75 women? I'm going to tell you what, I don't think they're worth it. No offense, ladies. <laughs> but a believer knows that when he dies, he's out of time and into eternity. He's out of this world and with God. And here in chapter 7 and here in chapter 14, the dead who are blessed pass from life and immediately are standing before the throne of God. Why? Because there's no time in heaven. You wouldn't wait in heaven. There's no time in heaven. There are no daytimers in glory. There are no watches in glory. Amen. You can preach for two hours if you want to. John, you can tell us about the trip for an hour and a half when you get to glory. Or take a million years if you want. It's no problem, right, choir? 
And the Bible says, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord because they have immediate rest from their labors. Anapao is the word. It is the, the word figure that is used for a soldier who's been in a heavy conflict and he's come home and they've given him six months off. It's the picture of the sailor who's been to battle at sea for four months and now he comes home to rest from his labors. That's what a Christian does in the presence of Almighty God. I think it is an incredible source of encouragement that in the middle of this panoramic 360-degree view of the end of things, God says, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord, for they rest from their labors and their works do follow them. We don't understand what eternity means, except let me, let me, let me say this again. <laughs> Time is a line and eternity is a dot. And when you're in eternity, God sees all things in history as if it were a four-act play with all four acts going on at one time. Or God sees eternity as a house with transparent glass walls. When he looks at the house, he sees everything going on in every room at the same time because there's no sequence in heaven. There's no time in heaven. There's no waiting. To be absent from the body is to stand in God's presence and to be in eternity. And all of these things go on, not in sequence. That's for our benefit here. They're going on in heaven now. That's why God can see prophecy. And there is a fifth thing that he sees in verse 14. I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is overripe. You know what over, that's not just ripe, it's overripe. It's way past time. I got three bananas at home sitting on the counter and I looked at them this morning and felt them and they were overripe. They're bound for the freezer cemetery of all overripe bananas to await the glorious destiny of being used as frozen overripe bananas in a luscious, delicious milkshake made with non-fat yogurt and non-fat milk. Amen. The cemetery of overripe bananas is my freezer. That's what happens to all of them. I save that potassium. Aren't you proud of me, John? Learning that. <laughs> but the harvest time is ripe. The Son of Man. I believe this is Jesus himself. I believe, take Daniel's phrase, one like the Son of Man. I believe it means Christ. He has on his head the golden crown and his hand a sharp sickle because judgment has been committed to the Son of God. And another angel then comes out of the temple crying with a loud voice and says, thrust in your sickle and reap. It's not that the angel gives Christ instructions. He comes from the temple. He comes from the presence of God to say, all right, Lord of heaven, son of man, king of kings, it is now time for judgment to come because Jesus said even he didn't know when the time of his coming really was. The coming of Christ is always based upon conditions and not a calendar. And that's why anybody who tries to make a, uh, an estimate of time is off base, like Kuykendall did when he said Jesus was coming in 88 and he sold 5 million books. 
What did P.T. Barnum say was born every minute? <laughs> it's conditions that dictate when Jesus comes. And now the harvest this is the end of the world. Remember, Jesus comes in the air for his church to be raptured out, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. But he also said, Jesus said, I am coming. You will see the Son of Man coming on what? Of glory. What did he say in Matthew? Clouds of glory. And now in Revelation, he's coming on clouds. And the angel flying out from the mid heaven says, all right, the time has come. God says, this is my time. Earth has had enough. They've had opportunity to be saved. Man's will has been permitted to reign long enough. I'm now going to invoke my sovereignty and bring an end to things. Hold your hand here and turn back to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, you see this. You see it clearly. There's a, a harvest coming. 13 verse 37, he, when Jesus explains the tares... He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the what class? Read that carefully. Jesus said in Matthew that the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the what? Angels. And what do you see in Revelation here? Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. And what you're reading in Revelation 14 is a fulfillment of what Jesus prophesied in the parable of the tares. And so he puts in his sickle. And as he puts in his sickle, he draws. And as he draws, he takes wheat and tares. Do you ever understand the difference between wheat and tares? My granddad used to raise wheat. I learned how to eat pressure cooker beef. Granddad could take his old cows, his old milk cows, when they were too old to milk anymore, and he'd butcher those babies. And Grandma would take that tough old meat. I mean, Granddad's favorite was a daisy, and I remember eating daisy. You know, you give a child a chicken for Easter, and I told my little granddaughters last week, I'm going to give you two chickies for Christmas. I'm going to do to you what somebody did when your mama was little. <laughs> and then you can raise them, and then you can have fried chicken. Oh, no, the girl said, we can't eat our little chickies. Granddad used to eat his old cows. And Grandma would cook them in a pressure cooker. You remember that? And you could take old Daisy, that if you didn't put her in the pressure cooker, that meat, that beef would taste like shoe leather. But you cook that stuff in a pressure cooker and it takes that old gristle and just made it melt in your mouth. That was the best tasting beef. Out back, eat your heart out. You could never touch Daisy in a pressure cooker. I'm telling you. <laughs> Granddad walk out in the field and say, Charlie, he used to call me Charlie. You know the difference between the tear and, tears and wheat? Now listen to me carefully. When the wheat ripens, it always bows its head. But tares never bow their head. And when wheat ripens, it dies towards the earth. But tares stay fresh and strong. 
God knows the difference between tares and wheat. Now, thank God, he'll have already separated the wheat by the rapture for us, for the church. But in the tribulation period, at the harvest at the end of the age, those who have responded to the tribulation gospel will be known. But it's a principle that stands in every age. Verse 17, there is another angel that came out of the temple which is in heaven. And he had a sharp sickle indicating the severity of judgment. It's a severe judgment. This is the final judgment. That's the sixth thing that John saw. And the seventh is, finally in verse 18, yet another angel came out from the altar. Where from, class? The altar. Not from the temple. He came from under the altar. Do you remember who was in that altar? Who was under that altar in chapter 5? The souls of them that have been beheaded for Christ that cried out for judgment and vengeance in chapter 5. Do you remember that? This angel comes from under the altar. The blood of Abel cried up from the ground. The wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah cried out for judgment. And now you have from the altar those saints are finally addressed. And this angel comes out from under the altar and he had power over fire. And he cried with a loud, vo a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle and said, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine for her grapes are fully ripe. Now I believe that he's now moving to a final picture. This is the vintage. The first is a harvest of wheat and tares. This is the vintage. This seal. This is the end of everything. Pull out the vine. Pull out the grapes. It's all over. And take the grapes from the vine. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth. Verse 19. Gather the vine of the earth and through the vine. It's all over. This is a forecast that is done. Man is done. The sovereignty of God will be, will be uh, uh, asserted. And, the, and they're thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the wine, was, wine press was trampled outside the city. And blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now, here's the end. This is forecasting that when the Son of Man comes, he puts an end to the tribulation and sets up his kingdom and reigns. And that battle of Armageddon is Christ treading the wine press of the wrath of God. They would take the grapes and put them in a vat and those who were treading the winepress would, in their bare feet, walk over the grapes and squish the juice out. And it would run out a little drain and a trough down to storage barrels. And if they had a good harvest, the grape juice would splatter up on their robes and you would see. And so the judgment of God is like a wine. And that's why you see all through the prophecies of the Old Testament, Christ talking about treading the winepress of the wrath of God, the winepress of the wrath of God. It's the final judgment. And he squeezes out. And, and following the figure is the prophecy about blood that will come out of that valley of Jehoshaphat. Verse 20, the blood will come up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now, a furlong is a stadia. That's about an eighth of a mile. If you figure it precisely, that's 186 miles and the whole nation of Israel from Basra to Beersheba is only 160 miles. So there may be figurative language here, but the blood in that battle of Armageddon will be so deep. It will be so, it will be so bad as the nations come against God's people and Christ puts an end to war. 
and then he judges the nations. And that's what is meant by the treading of the winepress of the wrath of God. I'll just, I'm out of time, but look at Isaiah 63. I just want to show you one. I wish I had some more time to show you the pictures of this. But in Isaiah 63, here's the prophecy of Isaiah. This is what makes the Bible so fascinating to study. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness mighty to say. That's the one. Why is your apparel red, the prophet asked, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And your garments like one who's been treading the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart. The year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples, the Gentiles, in my anger, and made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. And Isaiah is prophesying that Christ will end everything. And he will do it in one final great act, treading the winepress of the wrath of God. And since he's the only perfect one, he's the only one fit to judge. And he's the standard. And he treads it alone. You see this right over here in Revelation 19. I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire in verse 12, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Why? He's treading the winepress of the wrath of God when he comes and puts an end. At the end of that tribulation, this is all prophetic, but at the end of that tribulation, when he puts an end to the nation's rebellion, he puts an end to their hatred of his people, and he closes a door and sets up his kingdom. It's all over now. What does that say to you? Does that say that God doesn't love you or that God doesn't love the world? No. Because God loves, God holds accountable. The world God loves. He did everything he could to offer them salvation, but in his sovereignty, he gave to man made in his image the power to choose or reject now, you can't be saved apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. I'm a Calvinist in that regard. But I believe that he has done all that is God's responsibility. He doesn't force his way into any man. And if you choose to reject Jesus Christ, you do it over God's love and in spite of it. And don't tell me that God is not a loving God because he judges. The highest form of of his demonstrated love is that he won't let me go and he won't let you go. And if you're his child, you can run from him and you can try to hide from him, but where shall you go to hide from the presence of the Lord? And his judgment is as sure in our lives as it is at the end of time. So I can stand and confidently assert that God loves me and God loves the whole world without fear of contradiction. I think we need to say it clearly to the whole world. God is love and God is holiness. God is good and God is just. 
God is loving kindness and God is accountability all in one. And friend, when Jesus comes in the air to take the church, he'll separate the saved from the lost. But in every age, the real wheat always bows its head and humbles itself before God while the tares stand erect. Somebody said to me, I don't know how to tell the tares from the wheat. I'll, I'll tell you. You show me a yielded heart to Jesus with a head bowed to the holy God and I'll show you somebody who's really been saved. And when Christ comes, he'll judge us. Now, we're not going to be judged for our salvation. That's settled. Aren't you glad? But in 1 Corinthians 3 and in 2 Corinthians 5, every Christian will be judged for his works. When God puts the sickle in us, we'll be judged for our works. How faithful were you to Christ? I'm going to close with a simple illustration, a composite. Let's say this man's name is John. John is raised in a Christian home. He's taught to serve the Lord. He serves the Lord through high school. He goes off to college. He meets a wonderful girl. He marries her. She's a nominal Christian too. They get married. They have a fine home. They have a couple of children. He gets into a good business. And then the business begins to prosper. And the wife begins to gain a little weight. He gets a little more money. He's put on several boards. He, he joins the country club. He's now got some more freedom. Money does that, you know. And as his wife gains a little weight and he spends more time in his business, he's home less. There's less affection to his wife. He falls into the trap of, of adultery. He has an affair. And suddenly he doesn't go to church any longer. And those two children that he dedicated to the Lord and stood down in front of the church and promised that he would serve God as he raised them, those children are kind of on their own. The woman that he promised to be faithful to when he said, I do, he's now broken his promise. The God that he promised to tithe when he started his business, he now no longer tithes. The church that he used to attend every Sunday morning, he now no longer comes every Sunday. He comes once a year to pay his dues, as it were. And when Christ comes, as he will judge the world at the end of, the time, of time, I can assure you, Christian, you will answer for the broken promises in your life. The value made to your wife, which you didn't keep. The value made to your husband, which you broke. The value made to God to rear those children and have family altar, and you haven't even prayed with him for months. The value made to God to read the Bible and witness, and it's been so long since you led a person to Christ, you wouldn't, you wouldn't remember how. The value made to tithe, and it's been so long since you tithe, you wouldn't remember what it means to give a tenth to God. And the value made to come to church and now you spend it every Sunday, you spend it the way you want. Are you a wheat or are you a tear? I ask that question. And when Christ comes and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for our deeds, vows to my wife, will it be an A or an F? Vows to rear my children will it be an A or an F God will give me. Vows to tithe will it be an A or an F. Vows to serve God obediently and devotedly will it be an A or an F when he pulls the sickle on us and we're raptured and we stand before the judgment seat. Will it be wood, hay, and straw or gold, silver, and precious stones? It's up to you.
But I want to tell you, God loves you. Even if you've broken promises to him, he loves you. He still loves you. And he wants you back. And when you come back, he's going to say just what Dean said. Welcome home, my child. I'm sure glad to have you back. Amen. And amen. Let's stand. Father, speak to each of us. And have your will in our lives. In Jesus' name.